what makes this important and really meaningful is that we're telling the stories that are hard to tell, but they're also the stories that are hard to hear. And in having the courage to face up to these as, as participants, we, we hope that as listeners, you have the courage to face up to your complicity and really take ownership of this policy that we're going to be describing and uh, take ownership of that as an American. Over the next two hours, you'll hear highlights from the first day of testimony from Winter Soldier, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The Rules of Engagement, or ROE, panel covered the killing and injuring of innocent civilians and unarmed combatants, as well as the destruction of property, infrastructure, and natural resources of Iraq and Afghanistan. This panel in particular was just one among many that were scheduled for this first day. It took about four hours, and 17 veterans had been scheduled to speak. The following are edited highlights of the day's broadcast, which was hosted by Aaron Glantz and Amy Allison. The reason I am doing this today is not only for myself and for the rest of society to hear, but it's for all those who can't be here to talk about the things that we went through, talk about the things that we did. During the siege of Fallujah, we changed rules of engagement more often than we changed our underwear. Individuals from my unit indiscriminately and unnecessarily open fire on innocent civilians as they're driving down the road on their own streets. I saw all these Iraqis dead, but it took an American soldier, someone of my own race and creed and, and skin color, to wake me up out of this kind of uh, slumber. Former Marine Corps Sergeant Adam Kokesh in the Fallujah area from February to September of 2004. And I actually volunteered to go to Iraq. I was a reservist in an artillery unit. And when I found out my unit was getting called up, I decided I didn't want to miss the party. So I found out that a civil affairs group at Camp Pendleton was looking for volunteers. And so I went out of my way to volunteer for that. And I was against the war before the war, even believing all of the lies that were told by Colin Powell at the U.N., believing all of the intelligence, believing all the spin, I didn't think it was going to be worth it. But I thought that afterwards what we were doing was cleaning up our mess and really responsible foreign policy and genuinely trying to do good by the Iraqi people, and that was something I wanted to be a part of and something that I enthusiastically risked my life for. This is the rules of engagement card that I was issued for our, our deployment to Iraq, and this is held up as the gold standard of conduct in the occupation right now, and they couldn't even cut it square but the, I'll just read a part of it. It says, nothing on this card prevents you from using deadly force to defend yourself. Enemy military and paramilitary forces may be attacked subject to the following instructions. Positive identification is required prior to engagement. Positive identification is reasonable certainty, and that's in quotes on the card, that your target is a legitimate military target. And, of course, we're supposed to keep this in our, in our breast pocket here. Um, but when Marines are put in a situation where they receive fire and all they see is a muzzle flash coming from a building, 
and they don't have positive identification, but they know that if they return fire through that window or towards that building, that they're, they're more likely to live through whatever's going on. It's a really difficult situation, and I think it's criminal to put such patriotic Americans who have sworn a, an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America in a situation where their morals are at odds with their survival instincts. So my civil affairs team was attached to Golf Company, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment, for part of the time we were there. And we were at Rock Amo Supply Point between the city of Fallujah and Camp Takatum. And we, got an, we were there as a civil affairs team supporting this infantry company. And we got an order to pack for three days and have a, our vehicle and a convoy ready to go at, at midnight. We weren't told where we were going. This was in April of 2004, right after the four Blackwater security, security agents were killed and had their bodies burned and strung up over the northern bridge, over the Euphrates, uh, on the western side of Fallujah. And they said, pack for three days. And we were going to put up the blocking position on the peninsula on the western part of the city. And if they had just told us that before we got our convoy brief, we, we would have known to pack for more than three days. But during the siege of Fallujah, we changed rules of engagement more often than we changed our underwear. At first it was, you know, you follow the rules of engagement, you do what you're supposed to do, and then there were times when it was you can shoot any suspicious observer, so someone with binoculars and a cell phone was fair game. And that really opened things up to a lot of subjectivity. But also firing at muzzle flashes into the city, firing Mark 19s into the city uh, became common practice. And at one point we imposed a curfew on the city of Fallujah, and at that point we were, we were told we were allowed to shoot anything after dark. And uh, fortunately, I was never put in that situation to make that decision, but there were a lot of Marines, you know, on the positions around me who were forced to make those choices. And in one incident, in the first couple of days we were there, there was a checkpoint shooting uh, to the west of our perimeter. The first picture, please. Adam Kokesh is bringing this up is a, a picture. This is a vehicle that was approaching. Uh, of a white, a burned out. Or a, um, impromptu vehicle checkpoint. Uh, we were told at a higher rate of speed that gave the Marines manning that checkpoint enough cost to be suspicious. And they unloaded into that vehicle with a 50 caliber machine gun. And, I mean, just the idea is that anybody coming at your position who doesn't slow down to five miles an hour has to be an enemy combatant. Well, you know, you're, you're, this was at dusk and Marines are all wearing camouflage. And this guy could just be cruising through his neighborhood. We'd only been there for a couple of days, rushing home to see his family. You know, we didn't know. But it was enough that the Marines got jumping, and they uh, shot a, a burst of 50-cal rounds into this vehicle. Next slide, please. And so the bullets started at the bumper and went up through the engine compartment, and then one round at least hit this Iraqi in the chest so hard that it broke his chair backwards. And... We saw the vehicle. Uh, we saw the vehicle burning in the distance, and of course, a vehicle that's that's caught on fire is going to make some noise. But everybody tried to justify and said, "Oh, they heard rounds cooking off, as in from the fire." Um, AK-47 rounds were, were bursting in, in, in the trunk or somewhere in the car, and uh, they dragged the car into the area where we were sleeping the next day, and we didn't even question that. But it was clear that there were no rounds or holes from rounds that were cooking off in the side of this car, and. Uh, next slide, please. That was a photo of an Iraqi, uh, a dead man. Um, and 
as was alluded to earlier, it felt funny because not because what we were doing was morally wrong, but because I wasn't the one that killed this guy. And there was a group of us Marines that, that all took turns taking pictures and, and posing like this. And at the first Winter Soldier in 1971, one of the testifiers showed a similar picture and said, don't ever let your government do this to you. And still our government is doing this to patriotic young men and women of this country who have volunteered their lives in the service of this country and putting them in a situation where this kind of thing is normal. Adam Kokesh, Next slide, leaning please. against a burned-out car. During the siege of Fallujah, there were a couple ceasefires, adding to the confusion over rules of engagement. But at one point, we decided that we were going to let out women and children from the city. And we thought it was the most gracious thing we could have done. And I, I went out on the bridge. This is the northern bridge over the Euphrates on the western side of Fallujah. And our guideline was uh, any for males, you know, they, they had to be under 14. If they were old enough to be in your fighting hole, they were too old to get out of the city. So I had to go there and, and turn these men back. That's what we've seen in this picture. Uh, there's two Marines guarding the position on the bridge and turning away some of the civilians who had just been separated from their wives and children who we sent across the street. We didn't have any plan for them. It was just, hey, there's a mosque down the road. Good luck. And we thought that we were doing something really noble and gracious with that. And it took me a long time before I could step back and think about it you know, and what a horrible situation and decision we were forcing these families to make. Uh, you could split up and leave your, your husband and your older sons in the city and let them, you know, hope they don't, a, a Spectre gunship round doesn't land on their head or, or stay with them and hunker down and, and just hope that you make it through, the, through alive. Um, so after the siege of Fallujah, my team as a civil affairs team was pulled to set up a civil military operations center, or CMOC. Uh, outside the city of Fallujah, two clicks east of the city. And my role there was um, was manning the front checkpoint because we didn't have enough translators, and I was learning Arabic, and I spoke enough to run a checkpoint without a translator. So uh, we also had an Iraqi cop on duty 24 hours a day. It was supposed to be a liaison between the American forces and the Iraqi forces. And we were still putting down Spectre gunship rounds into the city during the siege. And apparently one night uh, some of those rounds started a fire, not surprisingly. And... The, uh, there were a number of firefighters and policemen responding to the scene. And so they went out, and they were then silhouetted against the fire between the Marines on the peninsula where I had just been and that fire. And so since those Marines' rules of engagement at the time were to shoot anything after dark, they started firing into these uh, Iraqi firefighters and policemen. And about the situation being, being criminal, about the criminality of putting Marines in this position, because when you tell them that the rules of engagement are you can shoot anything that moves after dark, we have a reasonable certainty based on our intelligence or whatever that anything that moves after dark is an enemy combatant. Well, you can't expect those Marines to stop and, and analyze every situation because they're going to operate based on those rules of engagement and they're going to do what they have to do. So I was got up in the middle of the night uh, when the Iraqi policemen at our checkpoint got the call and... Uh, through pointing and pantomime and the little Arabic I spoke at the time and an Arabic translation dictionary, I was able to help figure out that there were Marines shooting at uh, Iraqi firefighters and cops, and we were able to send it down our chain of command and stop that from happening. Um, but, you know, how many incidents like that happened where it wasn't so clear and there were just shadows that being shot at? And I know that, you know, that, that happened while I was there during the siege of Fallujah. Another thing I had to do... Uh, 
well, they, they, while I was running the checkpoint, one day in uh, in the middle of the summer, we were closed due to heavy fighting in Fallujah. That was the time that Zarqawi was there. And I got a, a random call on, on my field phone at the checkpoint saying, you need to take one Marine and get up to the road and stop any black opal that comes your way. <laughs> because Zarqawi was fleeing the city in a black opal. And all I could say was, what's an opal? <laughs> and... <laughs> So I got I got out there and I was with my marine. He was he was behind me and I saw a black blur coming towards us and I was like, "Hey, do you, is that a black opal?" And he was like, "That's a black blur, sergeant." <laughs> so I got up in the road and I pointed my rifle down the freeway and this was the main road going between Fallujah and Baghdad. And at this car that's going about 50 miles an hour, he yelled, "Kiff, stop!" And it whizzed right by me. And I turned around, and I was like, oh, crap, I hope I don't have to shoot out his tires. But uh, fortunately, he stopped, and I pulled him out. You know, the mother marine was right behind me. We got there. We pulled him out of the car uh, and said, you know, we need to search you. And, you know, they didn't tell me that I was looking for Zarqawi. <laughs> so I just it was like, all right, get out of the car. And he had his wife and his kids in the back seat. And, um, you know, I, I frisked him and called up and, and said, you know, got one pack detained. Please advise over and my staff sergeant came out, and he ran out there, trotted up, you know, after coming out of the air-conditioned building in the back. And he pulls out the Al-Zarqawi wanted poster and looks at him and looks at the poster and goes, ah, it's not him. Let him go. And that kind of thing where you know, we're just, you know, harassing people unnecessarily is really kind of part of daily life there. And eventually we set up a proper checkpoint, and uh, the, I, I, went, I was relieved and went back inside. And the Marines that were there were checking almost every car that came through, and they found a, a couple of guys that had a bag of cash in their back seat. And they detained them on suspicion, and we're like, all right, well, we're going to detain them and interrogate them. And so they were zip-cuffed and hooded. And we brought them, I brought them, I was told to go out and get them and pick them up. And so I picked them up in my Humvee, got the bag of cash, brought them back to the office where it was air-conditioned and, and sat them down and uh, was just keeping an eye on them. And then the interrogators got there, and they were like, why the heck are you guys being so nice to these people? They started roughing them up and throwing their heads against the wall and, you know, pre preparing them for interrogation. And they, they dragged them out of the office, and, and uh, apparently they got actually reprimanded on the outside of the office by, uh, by one of our officers for, um, for engaging in that unnecessary behavior. And then they interrogated them, and they found out that there was no reason uh, to detain them any further. And the, the bag of cash was about this big, which would have been a lot of American money, but Iraqi uh, dinars, it was only about $10,000, $15,000. And so they let him go, just like that. And I can tell you, if that money wasn't intended for the insurgency beforehand, it was after that. Audience clapping for Adam Kokesh as he continues his testimony. There's a lot of people that get detained who are innocent. There are a lot of people that get detained who are guilty. But they go through usually similar treatment. And even at Abu Ghraib, they'll do six months and get out because we obviously don't have the capacity to, to process them under any kind of due process. And we're really pissing a lot of people off that way. And if, if the game for the insurgents is you can, you can shoot at Americans, and if you get caught, if you're not killed, you do six months and you get out. You know, and then, you know, not that being at Abu Ghraib is a picnic by any means, but uh, it's kind of understood. So... When I got activated, I got activated two weeks before we deployed, and I found out that what we were going to be doing in civil affairs was exactly what the president was saying we were going to be doing on TV in terms of 
working on schools and mosques and clinics and water projects and really rebuilding Iraq. And I was like, I was really excited about that. I thought we were going to be the tip of the spear and we were going to be leading the charge to rebuild Iraq. And we were six man teams attached to these larger infantry units, regiments or battalions usually. And you couldn't go anywhere in the Fallujah area without six Humvees with machine guns, let alone mere six Marines. So we had to beg these infantry commanders to tag along on their convoys to do our missions. And we found ourselves constantly struggling to justify our existence to them. And we came up with a slogan. We care so that you don't have to. And to the macabre Marine Corps sense of humor, I know to a lot of the vets in the room, it's pretty funny. But it's easy to step back and think, man, we got units in Iraq whose job is to care so that someone else doesn't have to. Because that someone else isn't just those grunts that we were attached to, but it was, it was everybody all the way up. We care so that Paul Bremer doesn't have to, so that the chiefs of staff don't have to, so that Congress doesn't have to, so that Cheney doesn't have to as if he ever pretended to. So that, and so that the president himself can gush on and on about how much he cares about the Iraqi people while continuing a policy that is decimating their country. And we care so that the American people don't have to, so that these things can go on in the name, in our names, and can just go back to the mall and go about their daily lives and pretend like nothing's wrong. That's one of the things that disturbs me the most about the state of affairs right now. But as was made clear to me, because I took some pictures in Iraq that, uh, that were used in propaganda magazines that were put out to the Iraqi people to try to convince them that we were actually doing them a lot of good. And, you know, on a small local scale, we were in civil affairs. And I was really proud of some of the work that we did in, the, in those respects. But it was clear the, the futility of that in the bigger picture, that a country that desperately needs rule of law more than anything will never get it with a foreign military imposing martial law. And, you know, we had our functioning democracy in America without electricity for quite a few years. And we did all right. And to say that we can't leave until certain standards of living are met is absurd. But as soon as you choose looking good over doing right, you will fail miserably at both. That is former Marine Corps Sergeant Adam Kokesh. In terms of winning the hearts and minds, but by and large, that was... Uh, that was a phrase that was more played off of than anything. And we used to say, two in the heart and one in the mind. And this was my notebook that I carried even in civil affairs, taking my mission very seriously. Uh, last slide, please. This is my battle buddy, Staff Sergeant Christopher Kelly, call sign Keister. He was a patriot, a great friend, a superb mentor, and an exemplary leader of Marines. He had the sense of humor to get me through all the most troubling times in our deployment, and he always had the courage to tell his Marines the truth. And a picture of uh, one of Adam Kokesh's uh, battle buddies, soldiers in Iraq, who presumably has now passed. This is uh, turning to Clifton Hicks. I wrote about all this in my journal. A uh, civilian was run over and left for dead by one of our Humvees. Uh, I'll be brief about this. It was a 
We had been on a long night mission. We'd been out all night. We were tired. We wanted to go home and, and hit the rack. And uh, there'd been a lot of shooting that night. It had been a real bad night, and we just wanted it to be over. We wanted to go home. Um, and so these guys ahead of us were coming in the gate, and apparently they, they ran somebody over. Uh, because we were so tired and we were so sick of it all and we just wanted to go home and hit the hay, they didn't say anything. Uh, the staff sergeant, I mean, I, I know the guys in the Humvee. I know the driver. He's one of my best friends. And uh, the, the staff sergeant in command of the patrol was also a very close friend of mine. He's since been killed over there. Um, but the staff sergeant ordered the driver to continue driving, and then he also ordered everyone else on the patrol not to say anything about it, not because they were afraid of getting in trouble for killing somebody, but because he didn't want to have to wait around and fill out a report, or he didn't want to have to be inconvenienced. They just wanted to go home and go to sleep. And again, as I said in my opening statement, these are not bad people. These are not criminals. These are not monsters. These are people like any of us, but they're put in a, a horrible situation, and they respond horribly. And uh, when you're around that much death, uh, running over some guy who was standing in the road uh, is not a big deal. What's a big deal is getting stuck and being separated from your cot for another two or three hours having to talk about it. So they didn't say anything. Um, and, uh, you know, we rolled up on them, and, and then, you know, we, we were kind of the, the idiots who stopped and called it up, and we got stuck out there for three hours. And after that, uh, you know, that never happened again. We made sure that if, if we ever saw anybody dead or anything like that, we just kept going because uh, it wasn't worth the trouble. Uh, 21st February 2004, civilians killed and wounded by American small arms fire. Uh, during another nighttime patrol, and this was an unusually friendly neighborhood, uh, whatever that means, but this was a neighborhood where people came out and waved. People didn't really seem to hate us. Um, we're riding around, and we hear an IED blast up ahead in the road, and we hear AK-47 fire, and then we hear M-16s firing back, which is our rifles. So we can tell that some of our people are in a fight up there. So we race ahead, eager to get into some of the action. Um, and uh, at the time, we considered ourselves unlucky because by the time we showed up, the fight was over. That's how combat is in Iraq, at least when I was there. It was very quick. Uh, you'd be out for nine, ten days straight, and nothing would happen. And then for about eight seconds, uh, you know, all all hell would break loose, and uh, and then it'd be over. And then you'd just have the mess to pick up. Uh, but anyhow, there was a patrol of 82nd Airborne guys, infantry guys, in Humvees, and they were packed in these unarmored fiberglass Humvees with machine guns pointing out on either side. Uh, they were attacked by maybe two or three insurgents. They were in an open field, uh, laying in sort of a ditch across an open field to their left. On their right was the civilian neighborhood, which was just housing for disabled military families uh, from the Iraqi army, as, which was our understanding. Um, basically, they had taken fire from the left. Some of the guys also had heard gunfire coming in from the right. So the whole platoon returned fire in both directions. And an 82nd Infantry platoon is, is no laughing matter. When they all get going, uh, that's a lot of automatic weapons. That's a lot of guys who know how to use them and have used them a lot. That's a lot of firepower going off on both sides of the road there. Um, so the firing stopped immediately. They sent some guys, ran out into the field, uh, didn't find any insurgents, uh, looked for blood trails, didn't find any blood trails, didn't find anything but some empty shell casings. Uh, and then the rest of them had immediately dismounted and kicked in the door of this house that they had taken fire from, and they were going to raid the house and maybe catch the guy who'd been shooting at them. Well, what they found in this house, and this is a story that I've told a million times, and trust me, I do not enjoy telling it again, um, when, when they kicked in the door of this house that, where somebody had been firing from them from the roof, what they found was uh, uh, an entire extended Iraqi family, family 
and they were celebrating a wedding. And uh, for those of us who've been in Iraq, or at least in Baghdad, you know that any excuse they have is a good excuse to get on the roof and shoot their guns in the air. Uh, it's, just, it's just a celebratory thing. We've all heard of celebratory fire being mistaken for hostile fire, and this is a textbook case of that. Uh, old grandpa or whoever was on top of the roof cutting loose with his rifle because he was so happy that his daughter was getting married. Uh, meanwhile, this 82nd patrol in his front yard gets ambushed from across the road, and they return fire in both directions. And just to be brief on this, they, they hit three people inside the wedding party. Uh, one of them was an adult man uh, who was you know, slightly wounded. Another young girl, maybe 10, was slightly wounded. Um, but what really got me was uh, there was another girl who was maybe six or seven, and she was dead. Uh, she, I, I looked through the. I was in the gunner's hatch of the Humvee. I didn't get out and, and go inside the house, but I looked through the doorway, and that was the first time that I had ever seen a little six-year-old girl uh, dead, and not just you know, you know, died of uh, you know, drowned in a swimming pool or something. Um, she had been shot by a bunch of you know teenage American kids. Um, but so, but these things happen. Uh, this isn't, you know, people always say, yeah, well, that, that's war, and that is war, and that's especially this war. That wasn't uh, what's, what's interesting about this, because this happens every day. Little girls get killed by soldiers in Iraq every day, not because we want to, but just because it happens. Um, um, well, what happened was uh, the 82nd Patrol just sort of mounted up and they rode off. Like, they just got the hell out of there. It wasn't their zone. It was our zone. So they left it with us. It was our responsibility. Once again, we got stuck calling this stuff up. We called it up to our tactical operations center, which we called the TOC, and we told them what happened. And, uh, and uh, basically they told us to continue mission. They said Charlie Mike, and that's military jargon for continue mission. And uh, so we, we, were, we didn't want to be there anymore. Uh, we just hopped up in our Humvees and rode out. And we didn't have, we didn't even have a translator, you know, and we didn't speak Arabic. We couldn't even say sorry, you know. We just, we just hopped in our vehicle and rode off. Um, uh, this incident does not reflect negligence on the part of the soldiers directly involved, but it does illustrate the carelessness with which the U.S. military handles civilian casualties on the battlefield. We fired automatic weapons into the middle of a wedding party, wounding and killing several guests, and our only reaction afterwards was to drive away. And forget about it. And that's the thing. It's so difficult to get up here and talk about these things for obvious reasons. But what's also difficult is that, like, right after this happened, we never talked about it again. We drove away, and we went back. We didn't even tell the other guys back at the post about this. This was just something that just we just shuffled it back in our minds, and we thought, well, these things happen, and we didn't really think about it too much. And it was just lost. It was just forgotten. And then the war, or the occupation, I should say, dragged on. Right now, the security is uh, pulling out someone who's screaming at the front. There are three, four red-shirted security people Anyhow, pulling out uh, um, a man who is screaming. Timing. I'm going to yield the rest of my time to the other speakers. Thank you all. Okay. All right. That was Clifton Hicks finishing up his testimony as part of the rules of engagement. And uh, he's receiving a standing ovation from the hundreds of people that are in the room. And we are here at uh, the... National Labor College in Silver Spring, Maryland, Winter Soldier 2008. Again, this, the standing ovation is continuing. And lastly, I would uh, like to bring up something that Lauren uh, here has brought up earlier, and that is the, uh, the raids and the, and the way the raids are conducted. Steve, Stephen Casey is uh, continuing his testimony. The, uh, 
what happens to, uh, to go on at the raids, and typically, um, in many, many instances, it is what the military calls a dry hole or whoops. Um, several times this happened. Specifically, I have one event I would like to talk about, and I'll provi uh, be providing uh, some video evidence. Uh, it's sort of a truncated version of, of, the, of the raid, uh, but you can get the gist. Um, we, it was just a, a typical night raid. Um, it was uh, my platoon, a couple Bradleys. Um, we rolled uh, out to this, this house. And uh, the procedure for getting into the gate, because typically there were con concrete gate, uh, walls with uh, metal gates uh, closed and secured. So we would pivot steer the Bradleys into the walls to knock down the wall and tear down the infrastructure, the, whatever security infrastructure the, the person's home had, uh, sometimes even crushing the vehicles parked right behind it because uh, you can't see over it. Um, after doing that, uh, we drop the ramp and uh, continue inside. Um, we go to the, uh, uh, the right door, which happens to be the wrong door. You can't get in the house for this door. There's actually uh, there's a deep freeze behind the house. So in all this chaos, everyone's screaming uh, we, and trying to find another way to get in. We go through the front door. Uh, and then we start hearing a lady screaming from the inside, uh, her and her children. Uh, ask, and we get to the door and bust the door in and take her and her children to what we call the EPW Roundup Area, which is where a couple lower enlisted soldiers would take the enemy prisoners of war, like this lady and her children, at gunpoint and hold them until the raid was complete. Um, so moving on through there, we entered their house and destroyed it. We rummaged through her personal effects that touched things no one should ever um, probably touch, looking for weapons. Um, puncturing the walls, looking for soft spots. That was the new thing at the point in time that they were putting things in the walls. So that was our order. Um, so I guess to make this a long story short, um, we destroy this lady's house and we find nothing. We've, we've scared her to death and her children and come out, find out at the end of the video, you'll even hear, uh, we were off by a number. It was the house across the street. So... Um, and we didn't go. This is the really, I mean, at the time, I actually say, hey, we've got time. Why don't we go? Um, however, we didn't go. We chalked it up. And as he says, Charlie Mike went home and maybe went to bed. So if you don't mind, I would like uh, to show that video if I could. Now we're preparing, now we're preparing to really see loud. the video from Stephen Casey, and since we're on the radio, I will help to translate the images that we see as soon as uh, this uh, video comes up. And again, we're hearing testimony from Stephen Casey. Uh, we actually have some audio um, that uh, we've prepared specifically for this broadcast. And again, you're listening to Pacifica Radio's national live broadcast of Winter Soldier direct testimony from Iraq and Afghanistan vets. And uh, we'll be playing this video, uh, audio from the video in uh, just a moment. All right, so we, uh, again, you can go to warcomeshome.org to blog with us, so send, us a, send us a question or comment 
at uh, wintersoldier at kpfa.org. And uh, this rules of engagement testimony is uh, very emotional. You can see that the um, you can see that the uh, the veterans that are on the dais uh, testifying are are emotional, um, and uh, they're preparing to do the video. So we're just waiting to have the audio cued. Okay, and this should be the Stephen. And as you can, uh, we here in the room seeing the video, a house raid where they clearly went into the wrong house and arrested the wrong people and uh, then went across the street where they were going to continue their raids. We continue now with uh, Clifton Hicks's testimony, a 50 cal gunner during the first year of this occupation. Rounded them up and um, had them scared for, uh, it was probably about a 45-minute ordeal. Unfortunately, I didn't have that much even video left on my hard drive at the time. Um, and the way it was videoed, uh, if you were wondering, um, on my vest, I had it um, corded. The camera was corded to my vest, and I just was able to pause it on and off to save memory so I could get bits and pieces instead of just all the beginning or all of the middle. So... Um, altogether, there's actually seven minutes of footage, um, but what you just saw was the uh, bringing her out, uh, the initial um, clearing of the first floor, uh, and in the end, once we realize there's absolutely nothing in the house, we've destroyed her house um, with, a, with absolutely no respect for anything that was in there. Uh, and then we get the, uh, the word that, whoops, wasn't the right place. So... That being said, um, I just do want to add that, that that is not an isolated incident. Um, I can speak on the behalf of the platoon I was with. That was not an isolated incident for us. Um, but I would like to say I, I can't blame the people who did it. I was one of them. We, we were all good people. We just uh, were in a bad situation, and we did what we had to do to get through. So uh, for all those in the video and that I served with, um, like Cliff said, I have to thank him, um, and I uh, I hope they hear it. That's all I have. That's a testimony of Stephen Casey here at the Rules of Engagement testimony as part of Winter Soldier Iraq and Afghanistan 2008. My name is Jason Hurd. I recently completed 10 years of honorable service to my country in both the U.S. Army and the Tennessee National Guard. I served in central Baghdad from November of 04 to November of 05. 
I'm from a little place nestled in the mountains of East Tennessee called Kingsport, and uh, hence the uh, mountain man beard. People don't really trust you if you're clean-shaven there. Um, Kingsport is truly small-town America. There's a Baptist church on every street corner, and even the high-class restaurants serve biscuits and gravy. My father, Carl C. Hurd, who died in 2000, he was 76 years old, he was a Marine during World War II. Obviously, I was a latecomer in his life. He didn't have me until in his late 50s. Uh, as a matter of fact, when he died shortly after that, I have the two World War II battles he participated in tattooed on my arm, and my father had the same tattoo. He was in the Pacific Campaign and participated in the battles of Tarawa and Guadalcanal, which were some of the bloodiest occurrences of that war. I decided to join the military in 1997. I was 17 years old. I had just graduated from high school, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life. My father was adamantly opposed to me serving in the military. My father was one of the most warmongering, gun-loving people you could ever meet. But he didn't feel that way when it came to his son because he knew the negative psychological consequences of combat service. Looking back... Looking back, I know for a fact that my father had post-traumatic stress disorder. He had the rage, he had the nightmares, and he had the flashbacks. I decided against my father's wishes to go into the military as a medic in August of 97. I went to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I did my medical training at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and I spent the rest of my four-year tour on active duty at Fort Lewis, Washington serving under the second ID. Originally, I intended to do my four years and get off of active duty and go to college in Kingsport, uh, excuse me, in Johnson City, Tennessee. But about a month before I left active duty, a National Guard recruiter approached me and said, hey, we've got a uh, expanded unit in your hometown in Kingsport, and if you decide to join that, um, we can give you a lot of college money. And he offered me so much college money that it swayed my vote so I decided to sign up for six more years in the Tennessee National Guard. I deployed to Iraq in June of 07, excuse me, we deployed to Camp Shelby, Mississippi for a train-up to go to Iraq in June of, of 04. We got into Iraq in November of 04, and I was there until November of 05. I served as a medic with Troop F, 2nd Squadron, 278th Regimental Combat Team. Our first six months in country were relatively um, uneventful. We had missions that did not expose us to a lot of danger. We lived inside the Green Zone, otherwise known as the International Zone, in central Baghdad. Uh, our first mission, when we got on the ground, we manned observation points around the Green Zone. We had three in a zoo where the border of the Green Zone passes through, and we had two on the Tigris River that overlooked it. These few months, like I said, were relatively uneventful, um, except for one incident that I can remember. Um, one of the observation points that overlooked the Tigris River looked out at the old Republican Guard barracks, which were across the river. And there was one of those buildings that was sort of dilapidated, 
However, we knew that uh, squatters had taken this building over, and uh, we actually used to make jokes that this place looked like a crack house and that they were running drugs out of there. We had no evidence of that. It was just joking. One day, um, Iraqi police uh, got into uh, an exchange of gunfire with some unknown individuals around that building. Um, some of the stray rounds came across the Tigris River and hit the shield of one of our Hummers. The gunner atop that Hummer decided to open fire with his 50 caliber machine gun into that building. He expended about a case and a half of ammunition. And I'm no weapons expert, I'm a medic, but I talked to some of my colleagues just the other night, and to put this into perspective for you all, each case of 50 cal ammunition holds about 150 rounds. A case and a half is well over 200 rounds. Over 200 rounds of 50 caliber ammunition could take out just about every single person in this room. We fired indiscriminately and unnecessarily at this building. We never got a body count. We never got a casualty count afterwards. Another unit came through and swept up that mess. Ladies and gentlemen, things like that happen every day in Iraq. We react out of fear, fear for our lives, and we cause complete and utter destruction. After we finished the mission manning those observation points, we moved on. My platoon specifically was tasked with uh, running security escort for two explosive ordnance teams, one U.S. Navy and one Australian EOD team. On day one, the U.S. Navy team took us all aside for some specialized training. They took us aside and said, look, EOD teams are some of the most highly targeted entities in Iraq. The reason being is because, hey, we're the guys that go out and we disarm car bombs. We mess up the tactics and the operations of the insurgency. That's why we're highly targeted. So you guys have to use more aggressive tactics to protect us. And they explained to us that what we were to do is keep a 50-meter perimeter, a 50-meter bubble around our trucks at all times, whether we're driving down the road or whether we're stationary. And if anything comes in that 50-meter bubble, we're to get it out immediately. If it doesn't want to move, we use what are called levels of aggression. Your first option is to try to push it out by using hand signals, hand and arm signals. Your next option is to fire a warning shot into the ground. And from there on, you walk bullets up the car, and your last option is to shoot the person driving the car. This is for our own protection. Car bombs are a real danger in Iraq. And, in fact, that's the vast majority of what I saw in Baghdad is car bombings. My unit adhered strictly to these guidelines for a few weeks. But as time went on and the absurdity of war sat in, they started taking things too far. Individuals from my unit indiscriminately and unnecessarily opened fire on innocent civilians as they're driving down the road on their own streets. My unit, individuals from my platoon, would fire into the grills of these cars and then come back in the evenings after missions were done and brag about it. They would say, hey, did you guys see that car I shot at? It spewed radiator fluid all over the ground. Wasn't that cool? 
I remember thinking back on that and how appalled I was that we were bragging about these things, that we were laughing. But that's what you do in a combat zone. That is your reality. That is how you deal with that predicament. After we finished the EOD escort missions, we moved on to another mission, patrolling the Kendi Street area, which is right outside of the green zone. Kendi Street is a relatively upscale neighborhood. Some of the houses in the Kendi area would cost well over a million dollars here in America. Um, this area, from what we were told, had no violent activity at all up until the point we started patrolling this area. We were the first U.S. military to do so on any regular basis. So we went in. We started doing patrols through the streets. Uh, we started getting out, meeting and greeting the local population, trying to figure out what sort of issues they had, how we could resolve those issues. I remember we were out on a patrol one day, a dismounted patrol, and we were walking by a woman's house. She was outside in her garden doing some work. We had our interpreter with us, and our interpreter threw up his hand and said, Salam Alaikum, which is their greeting in Iraq. It means peace of God be with you. And he translated back to us what she said. She said, no, no peace of God be with you. She was angry and she was frustrated. And so we stopped and our interpreter said, well, what's the matter? What's, why are you so angry? We're here uh, protecting you. We're here to ensure your safety. And that woman began to tell us a story. Just a few months prior to this, her husband had been shot and killed by a United States convoy because he got too close to their convoy. He was not an insurgent. He was not a terrorist. He was merely a working man trying to make a living for his family. To make matters worse, a few weeks later, there was a special forces team who operated in the Kindy area. And as you know, special forces do clandestine operations. And so even though this was my unit's area of operation, we didn't know what the special forces teams were actually doing there. They holed up in a, in a uh, building there in the Kindy Street area uh, and made a compound out of it. A few weeks after this man died, the special forces team got some intelligence that this woman was supporting the insurgency. And so they conducted a raid on her home, zip-tied her and her two children, threw them on the floor, and I guess her son was old enough to be perceived as a possible threat, so they detained him and took him away. For the next two weeks, this woman had no idea whether her son was alive, dead, or worse. At the end of that two weeks, the special forces team rolled up, dropped her son off, and without so much as an apology, drove off. It turns out they had found they had acted on bad intelligence. Ladies and gentlemen, things like that happen every day in Iraq. We are harassing these people. We are disrupting their lives. I want to tell you a very personal story. And I want you all to bear with me because this is always difficult for me to tell. One day we were on another dismounted patrol through the Kendi Street area. We were walking past an area we called the Garden Center because it was literally a fenced-off garden. As is policy, we are to keep all cars and individuals away from our formation. And so a car was approaching us from the front. I was at the rear of the formation because I was the medic, and the medics hang out at the back with the platoon sergeant in case anything happens up front so you can respond. They waved the car off down a side street so that it would not come near our formation. 
As I made it up to that side street, the car had turned around and was coming back towards us because the street was blocked off by a a concrete T barrier at the other end. So I began doing my levels of aggression. I held up my hand, getting, trying to get the car to stop. The car sped up. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is it. This is someone who is trying to hurt us. And so instead of doing what I should have done according to policy and raising my weapon, instead I did what you should never do, and I took my hands off of my weapon altogether and began jumping up and down, waving my hands back and forth, trying to get this car to stop and see me. The car kept coming. And so I raised my weapon, and the car kept coming. I pulled my selector switch off of safe, and the car kept coming. I was applying pressure to my trigger, getting ready to fire on the vehicle. And out of nowhere, a man came off of the side of the road, flagged the car down, and got it to pull over. He walked around to the driver's side door, opened it up, and out popped an 80-year-old woman. Come to find out, this woman was a highly respected figure in the community, and I don't have a clue what would have happened had I opened fire on this woman. I would imagine a riot. Ladies and gentlemen, I hate guns. I spent 10 years in the military, and I carried two of them on my side in Iraq. But I think they should be melted down and turned into jewelry. Jason Hurd is a veteran from Tennessee. That is the worst thing that I've ever done in my life. I am a peaceful person. But yet in Iraq, I drew down on an 80-year-old geriatric woman who could not see me because I was in front of a desert-colored vehicle, or excuse me, desert-colored building wearing desert-colored camouflage. Another personal story from my experience. The next mission that we got was to man the main checkpoint that entered into the green zone. We called this checkpoint Slaughterhouse 11. Because the very first day we got into country, a car bomb went off in that checkpoint. We were a couple of blocks away at the time, and none of us knew what it was. So we were asking around, what was that? What was that? Oh, that's the car bomb that goes off every single morning at that checkpoint 11. Uh, And that's where the name Slaughterhouse 11 comes from. You could literally set your watch by the time a car bomb would explode in that checkpoint every day. Towards the end of my tour, we got the mission to take that checkpoint over. And my unit said, what is the matter with you people? We're getting ready to go home in just a couple of months. Why are you giving us Slaughterhouse 11? Are you wanting us to die? Day one that we took that checkpoint over and ran it ourselves, a car bomb drove into it and exploded. We found out that there was over a 1,000 pounds of explosives in that car afterwards. Luckily, it did not hurt any of my guys. My guys were able to find cover, and it didn't hurt them. But it killed untold numbers of Iraqi civilians in queue to come into the checkpoint and injured so many more. I treated five people that day myself, and I would imagine 20 or 30 others got carted off into civilian ambulances before I could get to them. But I have an image that is burned into my mind to this very day, and I remember a man running towards me at the front of the checkpoint carrying a young 17- or 18-year-old Iraqi guy, uh, very thin, very uh, uh, sort of pale. He came running to, to me with this guy and laid him at my feet, 
I looked down at him, and the guy was missing from here to here of his arm, and his forearm was only held on by a small flap of skin. The bones were protruding, uh, and it was bleeding profusely. He had shrapnel wounds all over his torso, and when I log-rolled him onto his side to check his rear for wounds, I noticed that his entire left butt cheek was missing, and it was bleeding profusely, and it was pooling blood. And to this day, I have that image burned in my mind's eye. Almost every couple of days, I will get a flash of red color in my mind's eye, and it won't have any shape, no form, just a flash of red, and every time I associate it with that instant. So not only are we disrupting the lives of Iraqi civilians, but we're disrupting the lives of our veterans with this occupation. You know, conservatives say that the majority of Iraqis support attacks against coalition forces. The majority of Iraqis support us leaving immediately. And the majority of Iraqis see us as the main contributors to the violence in Iraq. This gives us a, a, a view at the prevailing sentiment in Iraq. And I like to explain it to everyone this way, especially in the South, because it, it rings with some, some semblance of truth to people down there. If a foreign occupying force came here to the United States, and regardless of what they told us, whether they told us they were here to free us, to liberate us, and to give us democracy, do you not think that every person that owns a shotgun would not come out of the hills and fight for their right to self-determination? This is the voice of Jason Hurd. He's a U.S. veteran from Tennessee speaking on the Rules of Engagement panel this morning. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's national broadcast of Winter Soldier. We'll be right back. You are listening to highlights from the first day of testimony from Winter Soldier, Iraq and Afghanistan. The following are excerpts from the second half of the Rules of Engagement panel. Good afternoon. My name is John Michael Turner. I currently reside in Burlington, Vermont. I served with Kilo Company 3rd Battalion 8th Marines as an automatic machine gunner. There's a term, uh, once a Marine, always a Marine, but there's also the term, eat the apple, F the core. I don't work for you no more. John Michael just tossed his dog tags out to the crowd. The crowd is standing and cheering at his actions. Most of the crowd are Iraq, Afghanistan, Persian Gulf War, and Vietnam era veterans. I served three deployments with Kilo Company, 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines, one of which was in Haiti. The other two were in Iraq, uh, in between Fallujah and Abu Ghraib the first time, and in downtown Ramadi at the government center the second time. Um, I do have some video footage and pictures that I'll be sharing with you. The videos that I do have, there are swear words in there, so those that are live-feeding this, you might need to turn the volume down. Can we please play the first video? So, or executive officer at the time of Kilo Company, and in this video he states, um, I think I just killed half the population of Northern Ramadi, F the red tape. Can you replay it, please? 
We're not able to play the complete video and turn up the sound because of FCC limitations on the use of uh, profanity. Uh, but the video shows an image out in the desert. And we're in Ramadi here, and the commanding officer of John Michael Turner's unit is speaking to them, uh, instructing them that he doesn't care if the entire town of Ramadi is killed. He said, I think I just killed half of the town of Ramadi, I believe he said, Aaron. Thank you. We had gone into a two-hour-long firefight, and um, it was over for quite some time, but he still felt the need to go ahead and drop a 500-pound laser-guided uh, missile on it, and this is the after-effects of it. And so now we're looking at an image, uh, obviously taken from a distance, and I think we're going to see an explosion. There's an explosion there, the laser-guided bomb. Huge explosions taken from a rooftop. And we're just witnessing the damage of those explosions. March 2006, we had gotten our Rules of Engagement brief at Camp Ramadi. Uh, just after we had gotten that brief, brief our uh, first sergeant had pulled my platoon aside and stated, uh, if you feel threatened in any way, shape, or form, take care of the threat and we'll deal with it later. With that being said, mistakes were made on several occasions. Uh, one incident was uh, this guy we called Mr. Wilson. Uh, my post was Post Alpha at the government center in the southwest corner, and his house was directly across the street. We had a high suicide vehicle-borne IED threat that day, and this car came running around the corner. And I fired one 50-caliber machine gun round at his direction, and it ricocheted off the ground through the floorboard of the car, through his shin, and then through the roof. Um, the car immediately came to a stop, and outside of the car came seven of his daughters, including Mr. Wilson himself. For, can you please play the, uh, the next picture? of um, a laser-guided laser bomb. I'm sorry I didn't show that, but please play this. And that's another laser-guided bomb explosion. That was done on the uh, Ministry of Health building. This building was still in use. There were still people that went there, um, and that was a missile that just went into it. But back to where I was going with uh, mistakes being made. Please go to the next picture. That is the site looking down the sight of a 50 caliber machine gun. For those of you who don't know, the round is about six inches long and the projectile is about an inch and a half long. There are many different types of rounds. Um, the one that was shot at Mr. Wilson was a slap round, which has a polyurethane base and a titanium tip. When the projectile exits from the barrel of the 50 caliber machine gun, it spreads open like that. So it'll go into your body, leaving a hole about four inches and exit um, leaving you with nothing. This will bring me to my next point. When mistakes were made, we carried drop weapons. Please go to the next picture. These weapons right here were taken from the Iraqi police uh, back during our first deployment. And this is just an example that we would take their weapons and carry them around with us in case we did mess up and shot the wrong person. Um, what we also did was uh, any time we went into a household, we would take the firing pins out of the weapon. Um, every household is allowed to have one AK-47 uh, 
for their own protection. And by taking out the firing pins, the weapons would not fire. Therefore, they had no protection against themselves or us. Please go to the next picture. This is what happens when you get hit with a 50 caliber. Next picture. I showed a photo of a car with the front window blown out and uh, bloody remains in the front seat. For those of you who don't know, that is brains. Um, that was not my kill. That was one of my friends. But uh, that did happen on my deployment to Iraq. And afterwards, it just goes to show you that the, after the mistakes that we did made, we had no respect for their bodies afterwards. Um, please go to the next picture. That is a man's face. Um, on April 2nd, 2005, at Abu Ghraib, we had a very highly coordinated attack on us. And uh, the next day, we went ahead and had to uh, search the premises for any remains. Um, and obviously that face, or that part of the face was found and put on top of a Kevlar so a picture could be taken of it. Next picture, please. This picture is kind of hard to see, but uh, we had a mortar attack at uh, Camp India, which was right in between Camp Fallujah and Abu Ghraib. And this was a 12-year-old worker who was building our camp for us, uh, and he took a piece of shrapnel to the head. Uh, next image, please. On April 18, 2006, I had my first confirmed kill. Uh, this man was innocent. I don't know his name. I called him the fat man. Um, he was walking back to his house, and I shot him in front of his friend and his father. The first round didn't kill him after I had hit him up here in his neck area. And afterwards, he started screaming and looked right into my eyes. So I looked at my friend who, was, who I was on post with, and I said, well, I can't let that happen. So I took another shot and took him out. He was then carried away by the rest of his family. It took seven people to carry his body away. We were all congratulated after we had our first kills, and that happened to have been mine. My, C or my company commander personally congratulated me, as he did everyone else in our company. This is the same individual who had stated that whoever gets their first kill by stabbing them to death will get a four-day pass when we return from Iraq. There was one incident where we got into a firefight just south of the government center, about 2,000 meters. We had no idea where the fire was coming from. And the way our rules of engagement were, pinpoint where the fire is coming from and throw a rocket at it. So with that being said, we still didn't know where the fire was coming from. And an 84 millimeter rocket was shot into a house. I do not know if there was anyone in it. We do not know if that's where the fire was coming from, but that's what was done. Please go to the next image. This man right here was my third confirmed kill. As you can see, he was riding his bicycle. 
This, later on in the day, we went ahead and uh, we had CBS, Laura Logan with us, but she was with the other squad. And so she wasn't with us. So myself and two other people went ahead and took out some individuals because we were excited about the firefight we had just gotten into and we didn't have a cameraman or woman with us. With that being said, anytime we did have embedded reporters with us, our actions would change drastically. We never acted the same. We were always on key with everything, did everything by the books. Please go to the next image. No, there's one out there. Well, the guy, no. The, the man on the bicycle, he was left in the street for about 10 minutes until we realized that we needed to leave where we were. And his body was dragged about 10 feet to the right of him where his body was thrown behind a rock wall and his bicycle was thrown on top of him. Another thing that we used to do a lot was recon by fire, where we would go ahead and try to start a firefight if we felt threatened in any way, shape, or form. There's one particular incident where we were working with the Iraqi Army and the Iraqi Special Forces in downtown Ramadi, and with our squad and the Iraqi Army, there was also lieutenant colonels, majors, first sergeants, and sergeant majors. Sorry, sergeants, major. With that being said, the Iraqi army would go into the house, kick in the doors, and then go ahead and shoot. And there were loud, loud bursts of machine gun fire. We thought we were taking fire, but then we later found out that it was them. House raids, because we were a grunt battalion, we were responsible for going on several patrols. Uh, a lot of the raids and patrols we did were at the night, around three o'clock in the morning, around there. Um, and what we would do is just kick in the doors and terrorize the families. That was an image taken around three o'clock in the morning through night vision goggles. And that is uh, the segregation of the women and children and the men. Um, if, if the men of the household were giving us problems, we'd go ahead and take care of them any way we felt necessary, whether it be choking them or slamming their head against the walls. If you go back to that one picture, that was one man that wasn't taken, uh, that was taken care of in a very bad way. Because, because of all the, the wiring that he had, it would be considered an IED-making material. Um, on my wrist, there is Arabic for FU. I got that put on my wrist just two weeks before we went to Iraq because that was my choking hand. And any time I felt the need to take out aggression, I would go ahead and use it. Please go to the next picture. Next. There's an instance of detainees and how they were treated in a nice manner. Next. That is the Fatimat Mosque Minaret. As you can see, it is written with bullet holes and holes in the top of it. Those were from mortars. And the next video that I'm going to show you is a tank round that went into that minaret, where we weren't sure if we were taking fire or not. Um, 
I'll, actually, I'll talk about this one. This is um, after uh, one of one of the guys in a weapons company had gotten shot. Uh, this is a way that we would take out our aggression. And we're seeing the entire minaret of a mosque being shot over and over again. To shoot into a mosque unless you were taking fire from it. There was no fire that was taken from that mosque. It was shot into because we were angry. Can you please play the next video? That being said, um, there's many more stories and incidents for me to talk about, although we don't have the time to. This just goes to show you that everyone sitting up here has these stories, and there's been over a million troops that have gone in and out of Iraq, so the, end, uh, the possibilities are endless. Next image, please. The reason I am doing this today is not only for myself and for the rest of society to hear but it's for all those who can't be here to talk about the things that we went through, talk about the things that we did. Next image. Those four crosses and this memorial service were for the five guys in Kilo Company, 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines that we lost. Throughout our, our unit, we had 18 that got killed. With that being said, that is my testimony. I just want to say that I am sorry for the hate and destruction that I have inflicted on innocent people, and I'm sorry for the hate and destruction that others have inflicted on innocent people. At one point, it was okay, but reality has shown that it is not, and that this is happening, and that until people hear about what is going on with this war, it will continue to happen, and people will continue to die. I am sorry for the things that I did. I am no longer the monster that I once was. Thank you. That was the moving, powerful testimony by John Michael Turner, a former Marine. He continues to get a standing ovation. At the beginning of his testimony, he threw away his dog tags. And this is Logan uh, my name is Logan Malaturi. I currently reside in Camden, New Jersey, the fourth most dangerous city in the U.S. Um, I moved there after I got out uh, to avoid running away from the violence that I experienced in Iraq. Um, it's my hope that um, if I can stop running from it, embrace it, not embrace it, but uh, not let it conquer me, that's, I think, what uh, has had the most healing effect on me. So a lot of people have asked me why I'm here today. Uh, I was a cynic when I joined IVAW. I, I was very hesitant to, uh, to, to advocate for the immediate withdrawal of troops. I've had a change of heart. Um, so anyway, that being said, uh, I enlisted, enlisted in the United States Army February 16th of 2000. I shipped out on active duty in, on August 9th of that same year. Um, I was immediately signed to 82nd Airborne. I went through airborne training. I was there just under two years on... September 11th, I was in the dentist chair getting three teeth pulled, so I got the privilege of watching the news for the next three days straight. Um, when the prospect of Af Afghanistan came up, I volunteered to go. I was in E3 at the time, and I didn't have enough rank uh, to pull the strings to get me into the, the right brigade that was going, so I didn't get to go. Uh, 
My second option, I decided to re-enlist for Hawaii and the 25th Infantry Division and go green to gold and become an officer. Uh, so I was very uh, committed to the military uh, when I initially enlisted, even though I, only, I mostly did so for college money. Uh, about a year into my time in Hawaii, I deployed on January 19, 2004. I was with 114 Golden Dragons, uh, 2nd Brigade, 25th Infantry Division. Uh, after two months uh, being in Tuus Karmatu, a small airfield south of Kirkuk, uh, we picked up and we were assigned to, to be a quick reaction force for the country. And so I, I traveled to all these different FOBs. Um, FOB Bernstein initially in Tuus Karmatu, FOB Duke in Najaf twice, FOB Mares in Mo Mosul, FOB Warrior in Kirkuk, FOB Sykes in Talifar, Operation Baton Rouge in Samara, and uh, FOB McHenry in Hawija. Uh, and, then we, uh, and then we redeployed in February 15, 2005. Um, I came back and let a lot of it stew. I didn't really do too much with it. Um, and after about six months, uh, because of a lot of different things going on in my life, I began to re-embrace Christian faith. I told myself I was a Christian basically, basically my whole life. Uh, and I, I came to see that uh, that faith obligates me to nonviolence. Uh, I applied to be a conscience objector. Uh, I asked my, my unit, my commander specifically, that uh, to return to Iraq without a weapon, I asked to be a non-combatant. Um, and through the process of being a CO uh, and having an interview with the psychiatrist, I was labeled or I was given a diagnosis of maladjustment disorder because every uh, soldier is trained to be an infantryman first. So the idea of a soldier going to battle without a weapon is incomprehensible. Uh, when the reality is we have two Congressional Medal of Honor winners who are conscience objectors, Desmond Doss in World War II and Thomas Bennett, who was killed in Vietnam, both were unarmed medics. Uh, and I wanted to carry on that legacy. I felt very strongly about nonviolence and, and providing alternatives to violence uh, in the middle of combat. Um, as a result of that, my commanders were convinced I had some grand scheme to get out of the Army. Uh, they, uh, they told me I was aiding the enemies of America, that I didn't deserve my, my rank. I was an E5 at the time. Uh, and they reassigned me after I had to apply pressure because they were sitting on my, my uh, procedure, on my application without doing anything. I got reassigned to a rear detachment battalion, and one of the most difficult days of my life was August 7, 2006, watching my unit deploy without me, knowing I wouldn't be there with them. Um, I want to preface what I'm saying uh, just by stating that nothing I'm sharing with you today should be misconstrued as an attack on the military. I've witnessed my fair share of bad social and economic situations that have been alleviated by one's enlistment in the, arm in the Army. Furthermore, one's experience in the service is less dependent upon the institution itself than, it, than on the people he or she shares that experience with. And as we have and will continue to see, many members of the armed forces have displayed the capacity to abuse the authority granted them by their rank or their office. And finally, it's my personal opinion that individual militarization causes significant and often irreversible injury to one's physical, social, and spiritual health. Um, I was a forward observer for, for in the active duty for six years. I'm not sure if anybody else has noticed. I want to make a quick comment about uh, the tagline, eyewitness accounts of the occupations. The first sense of occupation is, is obvious. Um, we're occupying a sovereign nation without the consent or the support of the international community. But the second sense I noticed sitting in the first panel this morning, um, in that sense of occupation, uh, there's a disturbing minority that enter Iraq with a profit motive who make their money from war and whose occupation is to extend and prolong this war to the benefit of their pocketbooks. I thought that was really interesting. My mind works really fast, so I thought I'd throw that out of you guys. Um, next slide, please. Um, as I said, I, I, my unit moved around a lot. This picture was taken 
in Mosul uh, just prior to the elections in January 2005. Um, and it's fairly representative of most of my time there. The ROE uh, would change. Uh, first of all, it was mostly verbal. We never were given ROE cards. Um, when Adam Kokesh this morning flashed one in front of everybody, that was actually the first time I saw it. I didn't think they existed. I thought they were one of those um, stress cards that people get in basic that are mostly rumors. Um, so we never got any concrete ROE that actually defined what our mission was and what our levels of aggression uh, were allowed to be. We were told, um, I think there were four S's, or maybe five. Uh, let me see if I remember correctly. Signal, shout, shove, shoot. Uh, I'm sorry. Signal, shout, show, shove, shoot. And that was the extent of what our ROE was on a running basis. The, uh, the golden rule, uh, one that we could always count on, was that if you feel threatened, uh, don't hesitate to use your weapon if you feel it's necessary. So that was our license. If something occurred, we could always say that we were threatened. And I think that I observed that a couple of times with uh, other members of my unit. Um, the ROE for in indirect assets, uh, artillery mortars, was always really clear. Uh, they were very restrictive in, in uh, my experience. Um, but for automatic weapons or rifles, they were never very clear. And that's where I think uh, that image is, is very powerful. Um, one thing that people don't always understand, and I can only speak to this because, uh, being a forward observer, uh, when we were in a uh, sitting position or if we, were, uh, if we visited a forward operating base that had artillery or mortars that had been in a sitting position for more than uh, several day, uh, weeks, you have to register the, the guns to the weather conditions, to uh, all, all different things. Um, so every now and then, forward observers were tasked to um, sit on an OP and watch rounds being fired. Um, you could call it training because we definitely utilized it to train up some of our younger Joes. Um, and essentially what we're doing is firing rounds into Iraq uh, while we were bored. Um, I didn't understand until recently that white phosphorus is not supposed to be fired. Uh, you know, it's not supposed to be used against uh, civilian targets or our civilian, you know, et cetera. Um, that's what we use as our training rounds uh, in what were hasty impact areas in Iraq. Um, so... I think uh, it's, it's important to realize that it's not just the, the operations themselves, uh, but it's also what we did for training was still had a significant impact on the surrounding community. Um, Jason Lemieux also mentioned the very permissive ROE. I experienced the same thing in Najaf in 2004 uh, in, I want to say, July. Rolling into the city, Mokhtar al-Sadr was our enemy at that time. Um, we were told anybody in black clothing with a green headband is... Uh, fair game to, to shoot. Uh, I never experienced it, but it was made very clear that this is the uniform of the enemy and you should feel uh, free to take them out whenever necessary. And that was the closest I think we got to conventional warfare, which is what I trained on for five years before I went to Iraq. Um, another time in Samara in October of 2004, I was a part of Bat Operation Baton Rouge. My platoon was attached to, uh, I believe, 126 <laughs> armor. Uh, we were the first light infantry to enter the city of Samara from the west. Uh, it was a train-up for Fallujah. We were told as a litmus test to see what uh, procedures we would need to incorporate into the attack on Fallujah in November. Um, on the second day, uh, on the, the roof of a school, uh, we had set up a security position. We would set up a security position, and uh, one of the snipers, uh, well, backtrack a little bit. Going into Samara, we were told that all of the, all of the civilians had um, been told that we were coming, that we had 
uh, a very permissive ROE because they were told that we, they were supposed to stay in their house or evacuate the city. Um, the following day, one of the snipers saw a man crossing the street with a bag in his hand and shot him. Within the ROE, um, but I don't think that that would, for me, satisfy my ethical kind of restrictions. Um, and another real quick one, and uh, after I got back from Iraq, um, hopefully to clar uh, cl anyway, when I clarify, there we go, thank you. Um, so what has also been said, uh, at the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, my battalion commander, after uh, three weeks in the box at Fort Irwin, uh, sat my company down for a pep doc, and he made it explicitly clear that if there was a problem and the wrong person went down, we would plant weapons to ensure that you guys are protected. Um, Several months later, uh, on their second deployment, would have been my second deployment, um, two members of my old unit were uh, brought up on Article 32 charge for premeditated murder, uh, and he was relieved. And I'm, I'm curious why he was relieved when uh, he obviously set the atmosphere that allowed uh, incidences like that to occur. Uh, next slide, please. And I'll try and make this as brief as, as possible. Um, on, in the lines of uh, unnecessary loss of life, um, I'm afraid you might not be able to see it very well. Uh, the turning point for the war for me came on November 16th of 2004 in Hawija. Uh, there's an American convoy that uh, I was on a convoy on a presence patrol, actually rocket man patrol. We were looking for mortarmen. Um, we got a call to assist another unit that had had an accident on a convoy. Vehicle had overturned over a reservoir, which you might be able to see, and was resting over part water and, and part land. Um, uh, I was asked to get in the water and look for bodies. Uh, I did that about an hour into it. Um, after I had gotten out of the water, I was circling the vehicle looking for things to do. Um, when I saw a set of legs sticking out from what used to be the door to the Humvee, uh, and at first glance I thought it was a rescuer talking to another uh, personnel pinned by the vehicle as uh, we had given morphine to. Um, I checked his, his leg. I, I tapped him on the leg. Didn't, I didn't uh, get a response. I indicated to one of the medics I think it was a casualty and that we needed to give him attention. His response was, he's too far gone. Um, we need to focus on the people who have a chance. Um, so for an hour and a half, I kind of fretted about what to do with this guy. Um, so, uh, and to explain, combat triage is actually the opposite from triage in a hospital where you rush the most immediate to the operating room. In combat, if someone doesn't have a chance, uh, you make it as comfortable for them as possible to die. Um, finally, a crane came, lifted the vehicle, got the guy out that was pinned uh, by his leg who had morphine already injected in him, and the uh, Special Forces medics got the other guy up, and he had a a pulse. He was still alive. Uh, and I heard on the radio going back to Kirkuk that he had died before he could reach the clinic. Um, and uh, for some reason that struck me pretty, uh, pretty hard. For nine nights I didn't sleep. I realized that uh, there's a great possibility that he died hearing everybody around him and knowing that nobody was coming to his aid. Uh, in the tents at night, uh, in the pitch dark, I couldn't stop thinking about how it felt uh, being trapped under a Humvee um, and possibly not being able to catch a breath and you know, cry for help. And then I really got disturbed when I realized, despite all the Iraqi bodies I had seen throughout Iraq, 
there was an American soldier that made me disturbed. Uh, and so for several months after that, and still today, I wrestle with, you know, what does that mean? That I saw all these Iraqis dead, or, you know, whatever nationals they were. Uh, but it took an American soldier, someone of my own race and creed and, and skin color, uh, to wake me up out of this kind of uh, slumber. And to illuminate it maybe a little bit, please forgive me for this necessarily harsh image, but imagine you wake up in the morning and in your purse or your wallet you find a membership card, if, if they have them, uh, from the KKK, and your name is on it. And you realize for years of your life you were, told, you were taught to think something about a certain people um, and what that must feel like and what that would take to overcome that uh, in your future. Um, and I want to close with um, real quickly why, um, why I, I do this. Uh, Martin Luther King said of the war in Vietnam, and I would repeat in the war of terror, uh, be, I, I oppose this war because I love America. I speak out against this war not in anger but with a great sorrow in my heart. I speak out against this, this war because I'm disappointed with America. There can be no, no great disappointment where there is no great love. I'm disappointed with our failure to deal forth positively and forthrightly to those e evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. We are presently moving down a dead-end road that will lead to national disaster, and I don't want a national disaster. Thanks for letting me share. And uh, that was Logan Leituri former U.S. Army sergeant who became a conscientious objector after returning to the United States in 2005. You're listening to the Winter Soldier coverage live on Pacifica Radio. Can you hear from the next panelist? Good evening, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, people around the world. My name is James Gilligan. I was a former corporal in the United States Marine Corps. I was promoted to sergeant on inactive duty. I served from 1999 to 2005. I participated in Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. I served in Afghanistan in 2004 for six months in Iraq in the initial invasion, as well as in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, on the fence line. In 2004 in Afghanistan, I was a corporal gunner on a Humvee. My lieutenant was in front of me. My sergeant was on my side. I was behind the weapon. My entire platoon was taking a knee as my lieutenant was going over our next mission. On a mountain range approximately five and a half to six kilometers out, there was a blast and a flash. I was the only person in my entire unit to see this flash. The shock wave came over to us, and everybody took a knee, and everybody looked around. Nobody could find out where it was coming from. Immediately, I got on the Prick 119 radio, and I radioed over that Echo 4 Golf, myself, had seen the flash, and I could give directions to it. My master sergeant, Top, had come across the radio and asked for the azimuth, which is the direction in which it came from. I pulled out my GPS. It was unfortunately too slow, so I pulled out my compass. When I pulled out my compass, I made the grave error of taking a compass reading next to a 240 machine gun, which had a, a high amount of metal content in it. And I gave the false azimuth. Hold on. I gave the false azimuth. And the top took my azimuth as true. He then asked for the distance at which the blast was. And I told him it was approximately five and a half to six kilometers. This I did under the supervision of my lieutenant and my sergeant. 
they launched one barrage of mortars, 81 millimeters, and asked me if I had eyes on the target and if I had seen impact. I had said no. They fired again and again. And on the fourth barrage, I was already turning the road and we were pulling away to go for a more secured position. I had reported back that they were, this target was out of range and I was unable to spot rounds anymore and I did not see any smoke or any mortars impact. They continued to fire a fifth and sixth barrage into an Afghani village. Members of the scout sniper team were in, an, in a hide up in the mountain and had been called down into the village to perform emergency triage on numerous casualties. <clears throat> Later that night, they called me over their tent and they asked me if I was qualified to call for fire. And I told them I was not qualified. However, I was asked and I gave the responses needed to to quickly assess the danger and proceed forward with the mission. My sergeant came over and luckily intervened before anything got hostile. There was no repercussion. Approximately a week later, we performed a med cap on the same area. And when we went back, there was obvious signs of aerial attack all over the village. And typically on a med cap, we perform to give shots, do minor dentistry, check the babies and stuff. And it was only after pulling out of that village that we were also hit by an IED. Later on, I was informed that through translators and interpreters, our unit had informed, this is, again, what I was told, that our unit had informed the Afghanis of the village that the Taliban does it again, if you let us know. In 2004, in Afghanistan, please find my slides. In 2004, in Afghanistan, again, scout sniper team was observing forward observers that were in the, they were in the procedure of spotting rounds as rockets were coming in from Pakistan being fired at our base in Afghanistan. There were three gentlemen, two men and one teenage boy. The scout snipers could have easily taken out and suppressed and cut off the, uh, the, the attack. They would not have been able to fire without a forward observer. However, the scout snipers and our unit deemed that it would be necessary that we puck them, personnel under custody. I informed my sergeant that I could plan this this puck procedure. I emplaced an 81 millimeter mortar platoon at the base of a hill and I had two cat gun trucks, combined any armor team, hide and defilade. I then called in air support with a Black Hawk helicopter and a Huey. The Black Hawk helicopter landed on our hillside and picked up immediately 10 to 15 Marines, hard charge and devil dogs, picked them up and brought them over to the next hilltop. At that point in time, these three Afghanis were obviously very scared. They had no weapons that I could see physically. The Huey gunship orbiting opened fire on the Afghanis as they were running down the hillside trying to get away from our gentlemen. But it was obvious that we had a tactical and 
we had superiority. We had superiority. There was no way that they could have gotten away, and it just did not seem right that you could open fire on three people running away from 15 Marines running down a hill, <laughs> ready to arrest you. 2003, Iraq. My H&S Company first sergeant. He had a thing for handing out candy to the children who would come up to our Humvees, winning the hearts and minds. My first sergeant had seen that there was a little girl next to the Humvee, and he personally handed her a lollipop. The little girl, excited, ran away from the vehicle, and we're guessing her brother or another neighborhood kid came up behind her and hit her. My first sergeant then proceeded to get out of the vehicle in a crowded marketplace, endangering our entire convoy, withdrew his M9 pistol, and ran after the kid, picked the kid up approximately 30 feet away from our vehicle, and hoisted him one foot in the air, threatening him with the M9 pistol. In 2003, in Iraq, we were ordered to secure an expeditionary runway. It was my job to pull overwatch security. While securing this expeditionary runway, we had observed that there was a gentleman at the end of the runway collecting souvenirs. It was, I was my job as a corporal to go down there and to go and investigate and, of course, push this guy away and inform him that he was not to be at the end of our runway collecting souvenirs. I took Lance Corporal Jerome with me, and we had went all the way down to the runway on foot. It's approximately 2,000 meters. After walking there, the gentleman was collecting bits of rounds that from a previous battle. I radioed over what he was doing, and of course we searched him and took away any kind of munitions that we had found. I was then ordered to search the vehicle. As I told Lance Corporal Jerome to secure my, my detainee, I went ahead and I searched the vehicle, after which when I reported back that I did not find anything further other than what was on the ground and we had already taken away from the gentleman, I was informed to make the vehicle inoperable. It is at this time that I pulled out my knife. I opened up the seats. I cut every single wire that I could find. I slashed tires, and I made sure that his vehicle could not be used again without even thinking that this could be this man's lifeblood. 2003. Shortly after being deployed to Iraq, within a week and a half, I was set for a six-month tour to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. During my time in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, I was capable of being on Camp X-Ray, as I did see the Army stress team, as well as I met several MPs, and I was informed of some of the tactics used in interrogation. Some of those tactics would be a female entering the room and unbuttoning her blouse to make the detainee uncomfortable during his, her interrogation, as well as, of course, waterboard. This, of course, is a controversial issue today. Second, nextly, that's not even a word. Next, this here is a picture of my, me shortly after my re-enlistment in Kuwait. I served four years, and then I re-enlisted for two years. Next, in, uh, in Iraq, for my unit, I was a member of the NBC reconnaissance team for my battalion. As my job on the NBC reconnaissance team, it was our job to go ahead and advise our battalion commander, squad leaders, and platoon leaders on the proper tactics and procedures when searching for and identifying nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. I can tell you this, we did not find anything, nor did we operate by any of the procedures. We passed up many places where we could have searched, 
and many places that we did search, we found nothing. Lastly, sappy plates. Sappy plates are armor plates that every server's member would have on him. This right here is a picture of me the first day I got shot at in Iraq. Sappy plates, we were issued two of them from Camp Lejeune. Unfortunately, when I got into Kuwait, I was informed that 1st Combat Engineer Battalion was issued none. So it was up to me to give either my front or my back sappy plate to a fellow Marine. I chose my back. Thank you very much. We've been listening to the testimony of James Gilligan, Winter Soldier 2008. He served in Iraq, Afghanistan, and at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And you can hear he's getting a round of applause. Can we hear from the next panelist, please? My name's Garrett Reppenhagen. I served as a scout, 19 Delta, with uh, 263 Armored Battalion, 1st Infantry Division, out of Vilsack, Germany. I deployed with the scouts to Kosovo for nine months on a peacekeeping mission and to Iraq for a year between February 04 to February 05 in OAF 2. I was stationed in and around Bakuba at a forward observation base called Skunyan, right across the street from Warhorse. Bakuba is about 35 miles northeast of Baghdad, and it's within the Sunni Triangle. My experience in Kosovo with my fellow scouts, we learned very well uh, how to operate with strict rules of engagement. It was a peacekeeping mission, stability and support. And we operated for those nine months under those premises, basically as cops with a little bit more leniency on ability of use of force. So when I got back uh, to Germany, I went to train at the International Interdiction Course in Stettin, Germany. It's a NATO-operated, uh, basically, special forces training where we uh, hurried through uh, sort of sniper training. And I became uh, a scout uh, sniper for the U.S. Army. We, uh, we operated in that time before going to Iraq. We, uh, we did a lot of classrooms in a classroom setting about rules of engagement, about Geneva Conventions, about how to operate in an environment of war. These things we already knew, but they were reinforced, and we had many new soldiers that need to catch up. We also trained in the field, uh, basically role-playing situations on what to do, what not to do, and how to use force properly. I found when I got to Iraq in February that many of that was thrown out the window. My first mission was a right seat ride with the unit that we were replacing. We had half of our men and half of their men go out and they got to show us the sector that we were going to operate in for the next year. At the time, there was a curfew in operation where Iraqis were not supposed to be outside of their houses after dark. We rolled around our sector, and eventually we came upon two men that were in the field. They were out after curfew, and they were not U.S. military or coalition forces. The men on the gun basically proceeded to open fire on these men, killing both of them where they stood. After the firing was through, we got off the trucks, and we moved out to the location of where the bodies were. Half the men remained with the trucks and guarded them and stayed on the guns and overwatched our movement. The rest of us went out to check. They were using 50 caliber machine guns, which is basically what was already described, almost salt shaker sized rounds flying out of this fully automatic weapon that's accurate range is almost about 2,000 meters. 
Mark 19 fully automated belt-fed grenade launchers where you hold the butterfly down and grenades fly out the other end. These weapons' primary use is for basically anti-vehicle weapons. In the, our rules of engagement that we just learned a month prior, we were not supposed to use these weapons on civilian enemy. Once we got to these men, they were blown into pieces. There was no sign of any sort of weapons, any sort of anything upon them. I was told by the sergeant scout that we were replacing that these men were out in their fields farming because the periodic electricity in their town, the pumps that irrigated their fields only operated while they had electricity, which meant to farm their fields, sometimes they had to go out into the dark, knowingly risking the curfew to farm their fields. I asked the sergeant why did he fire upon these men if he knew that they were farming in their field after he explained to me why they were there. And he told me because they were out after curfew. This was my sudden shock to realize that what I had just learned about rules of engagement were rapidly changing. I never got another rules of engagement briefing while I was in Iraq for that year. I was never updated on what changed or who I was able to shoot at. We just basically changed them ourselves. It was very slow at first as we kind of eased into it. We learned to push the envelope a little bit at a time. And basically we learned that, oh, we didn't get in trouble for that? Well, let's try this. By the time I left Iraq, it was pretty much fair game to shoot at anybody that we thought were, was a threat. I was not surprised to see that many of these went unreported. And when they were reported on, most of the documents and the reports that were signed by members who witnessed, service members who witnessed these, these events were basically falsified or people that did see these events happen said they didn't see it. It's very difficult in a combat environment to work alongside the men and women that are saving you every single day and watching your back to tattle on them when an accident happens. Much more so when the the definitions of an atrocity is so blurred in a combat environment. One time, I was with the personal security detachment for a military intelligence major. We were supposed to be going out monitoring mosques on basically what they were saying over the loudspeakers to the, to the surrounding village. Since they were in Arabic, we brought an interpreter, interpreter to inform us what was going on. While we got to our trucks that morning, we found out that Khalees was under attack, a nearby town. And the mortars were in the middle of the town in the Joint Command Center where all the major government buildings were in town. And they were pretty much surrounded by insurgents. The military intelligence major was very excited to get into combat. For most of his time in Iraq, he worked behind a desk. And he was not yet out into a combat mission. Much less the majority of the personal security detachment had not been engaged yet either despite the fact that we've been in Iraq for months. Many of them were made up of cooks, mechanics, supply personnel. Many of these men were either soldiers that their unit didn't want and wanted to get rid of and put them into this detachment, or they felt that they were the best for the job and wanted to be represented by the best men from their platoon. But regardless, many of them had no combat experience and no understanding of rules engagement. We rolled out the gate into Khalees, 
the man that was supposed to be on the machine gun of my truck was too afraid to operate his weapon. And he found out that he was even unable to load the weapon properly because he was so excited and scared. I was ordered by the, the major to basically take his place. And I got on this weapon, and it was, a, it was an M60 machine gun. It was an old Vietnam-era weapon that I have never even seen since I've been in the military. It was the first one I, I ever seen. So after learning how to load this weapon and operate it, we rolled out the gate. We got to a little intersection in Calice, and before us, we saw smoke rising up from the town, and we heard gunfire, and we heard explosions. And there was a circular perimeter of uh, Iraqi police and army trucks, just white pickup trucks, blocking off the perimeter of this traffic circle. And they would drive into this circle, and a truck would move out of the way and let a truck in and pull back forward. And it would be full of men, and men, basically military-aged men, in the back of the truck that were getting pulled out by MPs and getting beat up and zip-stripped, and some were even being shot in that traffic circle. The major was dismounted and walking around, and my buddy, who was also a sniper, there was only two, two of the snipers that were asked to come along on this mission, was out with them. And he was being told that the deputy governor of the Diala province house was under attack, and there was nobody there to defend him. So we got back in our trucks, and we made a sharp left away from Calice to the deputy governor's house. On the ride there, we came upon, in the medium, a pickup truck parked facing away from us. There were men armed, about five of them, in the back of the pickup truck. And one of them had an RPG, and it was pointed across a long, like, marshy field. And across that field was the deputy governor's house. Immediately pulled the trucks over in a uh, herringbone, basically. One truck just staggered, facing in different directions, trying to give everybody an equal opportunity to fire. I watched the man in the RPG slowly turn and look at me in the eye and look back at the deputy governor's house. I did not react hostilely, nor did anybody else in the pickup truck. After a moment went by, I finally heard the, the major yelling, fire, fire. Why the hell aren't you firing? The truck that the major was in began to fire upon this truck, and all the following trucks proceeded to fire upon him. Basically, we ripped this pickup truck to hell. All the men in the back of it were torn into shreds, and we continued to fire on the, on the vehicle. My weapon malfunctioned, and I was only able to fire one shot at a time. Later, I found out that the, the spring in the, in the feed cover tray was... was basically broken. So I could only fire one shot. So I'd have to reload the weapon, aim, and fire. Reload the weapon, aim, and fire, which is supposed to be a fully automatic belt-fed gun. I was using in single shot, almost like a sniper. I was able to acquire my targets and fire upon the men. In this confusion, a vehicle driving towards us right after the combat was initiated basically must have realized that too late he was in the middle of a combat zone and he decided to try to drive past us as quickly as possible rather than try to stop and turn around and go the other way. The lead truck vehicle fired his Mark 19 into that, into that car as it sped towards us. And I watched the round basically shadow the window, go inside, and almost just a, a light and a smoke erupted on the inside of the vehicle, and it tore off to the right into, into an embankment. I was able to fire two rounds to the windshield before, before it basically ran into a berm and spun there basically for a moment and I watched 
smoke trail out of the holes that I had created in the windshield from the grenades that, that exploded inside. And uh, in the mass of confusion, it's almost startling how little control you have and how much fear perpetuates you to not really concern yourself with things like rules of engagement and Geneva Conventions. Basically, your primary concern is getting yourself and your buddies home alive. And you realize that you're fighting for blue team and they're on A team. And it really doesn't matter what ideologies or why you're fighting anymore because you're there and you are fighting. Even though these men never fired a single round back at us, we were able to kill five of the men in the pickup truck and two men in this car that ran off the side of the road. At one point, the passenger of the car fell out the passenger side when trying to crawl towards one of the tires to seek protection from the tire. I had a very clear angle at the man, and I was hearing replies that there was gunfire coming from the vehicle, which I couldn't tell. But I had to take the word for it, so I began to shoot this man again and again with the M60, reloading a single shot, aiming and firing into his belly. Eventually, the man stopped moving, and eventually everybody stopped firing one after another. And it's kind of funny because I don't know if somebody ran out of ammo or if somebody said cease fire and nobody else heard it but one person. He stopped firing. The next stop person stopped firing. The next person stopped firing. And finally, we all stopped firing. And there were some men that were laughing, some men that were crying. And I was just scratching my head. And the Iraqi army, who had assembled behind us, were waiting for us to stop firing, moved in pretty quickly. They covered the vehicles, and they kicked all the weapons out into a circle. And I watched one of the Iraqi policemen raise his hands to his head in kind of a, oh, my God, sort of look. And I was like, what? You know, what, what? And all the rest of them sort of joined in, and you know, I realized something was, was very terribly wrong. And finally, it trailed back to us that these men that we had just killed were the deputy governor's bodyguards. Many of them were off-duty policemen and army, Iraqi army officers, that were trying to seek additional money by supporting and basically getting a job with the deputy governor to protect him. So all these men, basically, in the vehicle, in the men in the car, were not only innocent, but in a coalition, they were our allies. And it was basically fratricide. This is the kind of confusion that goes on every day in Iraq. Whether it's innocent civilians that we can't understand who they are or what they're doing, and there's muzzle flashes, and we just eliminate the enemy and they're in the way. Or, you know, whether it's men in a field that, you know, we assume are innocent anyways, but we don't even give them the benefit of the doubt, and we shoot them regardless. These things happen over and over again. And we don't have many photos of it. We don't have many stock footage of it. If we did, there'd be more Abu Ghraib scandals, and there'd be more Hadithas, and there'd be more Mike Greens that we can learn about. But all we do have is our testimonies. And hopefully, with the courageous uh, efforts of Iraq Veterans Against the War, we can continue to bring these to light. The men I served with were honorable soldiers. They were professionals. They went to Iraq hoping to do good, hoping to do right. They went to Iraq to defend their country, to defend their neighbors and defend their citizens. However, we found rapidly that that was not the case, that we were killing the Iraqi people in horrible ways, and we had to. We had to do it to protect ourselves and to operate our missions in the most safety that we could possibly do it. 
And most soldiers are going through this, whether they've seen a true atrocity or not. The truth of the matter is that the war is the atrocity. Thank you. That was Garrett Reppenhagen, who's receiving a standing ovation from the crowd. He was a scout sniper with the 1st Infantry Division, offering his testimony as part of the Rules of Engagement panel at the Winter Soldier 2008. At this one time, we have heard from many different members of across the armed uh, services, and now it is time to hear from the Iraqis. And this is Jabbar Magruder, the moderator. He's a California Army National Guardsman. In closing, you've heard stories of killing of innocent civilians, destruction of property, and these stories have occurred over several years, several branches of the military, multiple units, and in several operation areas overseas. These are not the result of bad apples. This is the result of an unofficial policy of killing. And such, it would be a mistake to point at individual soldiers, and it would be an equal mistake to point at individual leaders. This is not a failure of leadership. Let me repeat. This is not a failure of leadership. But, but it's just a, uh, the consequence of the nature of the occupation. When faced with a threat, commanders will give their subordinates the tools to defend themselves. Whether or not these, uh, these tools are intended to, uh, to hurt or harm anybody or have any basis in international law. It would be a mistake to think that the solution to this problem would be a tighter restriction or, you know, or more effective ROE. The problem is the occupation. Let me say that again. The problem is the occupation. And such violence itself cannot be restrained, cannot be contained with rules of engagement, that when your life is in danger, it does not matter what the rules of engagement are, that the problem is the occupation itself. And it's time to bring the troops home now. Thank you very much. Those are passionate, passionate words concluding the rules of engagement. Jabbar Magruder, who was a moderator for this panel. The veterans and uh, others are gathering around. Amy, it's an incredibly powerful moment. Almost everyone on the stage in tears. I, I have to say it's difficult for me to be sitting here with the level of journalistic attention that it requires. Uh, I can see, you know, you're also affected by this. And, you know, people are going down to dinner now, but they're going in in a, down to dinner in a, in a little bit different mood than they arrived this morning. There are people with their arms around each other's shoulders, holding each other walking slowly to the door, trying to absorb what they heard over and, the last day. And at the same time, we have Aaron Hughes, a former National Guardsman from Illinois who served a tour in Iraq, standing at the front saying, if there's anyone here who, after sitting through this today, would like to add their name to the testimony, please see us afterwards, indicating this is going to be an ongoing project, uh, that, you know, the, the day like today, if it's taxing, uh, if it's difficult, uh, but it can also be used to build a movement. A lot of people to thank. This is really a tremendous undertaking, uh, not only for us here, but a lot of folks back at the radio station in Berkeley, California. We'd like to thank our engineers, Eric Klein, Gary Baca, Quincy, and Dev Ross. 
Vinny Beecham, Miguel Carrero, Eden Tosh, Gregory Foisy, and especially Michael Yoshida and Lem Lem Regio. Michael Manacheri is our web director. Sasha Lilly is the project's executive producer. Our DC team is myself, Amy Allison, and Aaron Glantz. We're co-anchors. Esther Mania, who's also a veteran, Winter Soldier broadcast executive producer. John Amella, who's broadcast engineer, Pacifica Radio Archives, and Brian DeShorzer. I speak for a man who gave for this land, took a bullet in the back. No.